If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Uh, That will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through uh, the book of Exodus together. Uh, If you've not been with us in recent weeks, or if you're visiting with us today, uh, just to catch you up as to what we've been studying, we've been looking at how God rescued His people in the book of Exodus. They were in slavery in the land of Egypt. Uh, They cried out to God and He sent them a deliverer in Moses. Uh, Through miraculous ways, God worked there to deliver His people. He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. And and now they are on their way to the land of promise. Uh, During this time, what we've seen is God has been giving His people uh, the law. He's been teaching them the Ten Commandments. He's been teaching them about uh, how they should rightly worship Him. He's done this through communicating to Moses. Moses is the mediator. He's the one that God speaks to, and then Moses shares what God says to the people, and then Moses goes to God on behalf of the people. And while God is telling Moses, the mediator, about these laws and how they are to rightly worship him, the people grow anxious back down at the camp. In fact, they get to a point where they make a golden cow to worship. They had seen things like this when they were in Egypt, and so they think, well, we're going to worship like the Egyptians did. Uh, Of course, uh, this is uh, a great sin against God. This breaks the commandments God had given them. So when Moses returns and finds them doing this, uh, there's a consequence for their sin. Uh, And at that point, God could have just broken off His covenant with His people. But what we've seen in Exodus is that God is a gracious and merciful God. Uh, God is full of loving kindness. God is quick to forgive. And so God has given His people uh, another opportunity to follow Him. And so where we're at now in Exodus 34 is at a point where God is renewing His covenant with His people. He's reminding His people that He is the one who keeps the covenant. And He's calling them to, to recommit themselves to walk by faith with Him as they go on this journey to the land of promise. And so as we read through this text today, uh, some of these things uh, will be reminders of things we've already read in the past as as God recalls uh, different uh, festivals and things that they are to honor. But as we look to these things, I want us to think about what it means to really commit ourselves to walk with the Lord. So we're going to look at Exodus 34. Uh, We're going to look at verses 10 through 28. And so I'm going to read this entire text. And so out of reverence for God's word, if you would stand as I read this for us this Lord's day. This is the holy and inspired word of God that's been handed down to us. And this is what God says. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Least you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you were invited and you eat his sacrifice and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you and at the time appointed in the month of Abib. 
for in the month of Abib you came out of the land of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in a year shall you, all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. And when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. If you will pray with me. Father God, as we come to this teaching this morning, we read again some things that seem very different for us. A different feasts and festivals, different regulations that may seem very foreign to us this morning. And yet these are reminders of the covenant that you called your people to during the Exodus, and they point us towards the Gospel. So Father, I pray the more we learn about Moses, that we would learn about Jesus. I pray the more we learn about the Exodus, that we would learn about the Gospel. And I pray, God, through the power of your Spirit, that you would call us to respond to this Gospel today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were here with us uh, last Lord's Day, uh, David Vincent came and shared God's Word, and I appreciate David doing that. Uh, if you were here, you recall that he gave some advice at the beginning of the sermon, specifically, guys, on uh, what not to say at Valentine's Day. And as he was giving that advice, I couldn't help but think about an article I had just read uh, that also went along with Valentine's Day. Now, the headline of the article read this way, I'm loving it. Couples renew vows at Ithaca McDonald's drive through window. Uh, this article went on to describe how a, a radio station as a promotion in Ithaca, New York, had offered a drive through vow renewal at their local McDonald's. It said this, At the drive through window adorned with heart-shaped balloons, a smiling local radio DJ dressed in a royal blue robe asked the couple to never steal each other's fries again and to love, honor, and cherish each other as long as they both shall live. With a kiss and a ba-da-da-da-da, the couples were on their way. Now, this article recounted how one couple had actually had their 10-year their anniversary was on that day, and so... Of course, uh, like most of us, on their 10-year anniversary, they went to the McDonald's drive-thru, and there they were able to renew their vows. Now, uh, you can chalk this up with last week's sermon on probably things not to do. Uh, now, if it was a Chick-fil-A drive-thru, maybe, uh, but this probably isn't the most romantic way to renew your vows. Uh, but as I was reading through it, I, I was thinking about just that whole concept of renewing vows. 
Uh, we had some friends that uh, went on a cruise recently uh, from Bowling Green, and for their 30th anniversary, they renewed their vows. Some of you, perhaps, for a 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 year anniversary, maybe you've gone through a vow renewal ceremony. Uh, typically, when people renew their vows, they do it as a reminder. Uh, they're reminding one another uh, about those vows that they made that day they were married. Uh, they're reminding one another and perhaps even reminding others uh, of what it means to love one another for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, to love and to cherish as long as they both shall live. That, that wedding uh, renewal vow ceremony serves as a reminder, but for others, there can be some other reasons perhaps they would have vow renewals. Uh, these also can be fruits of repentance. Uh, I've known couples who've had strained relationships, who've had broken marriages, and through the power of Christ and through the gospel, they've seen God redeem their marriage, and they've come to a point where they had a vow renewal ceremony as a fruit of that repentance, as a mark of that repentance, as a commitment to one another that they would now take seriously these vows that they once forsook. Some couples, perhaps it's both of these together are the reasons for vow renewals. A mark of reminder, a mark of repentance. They're being reminded of this covenant promise that they once made to one another. As we come to Exodus 34, we come to a, a different type of reminder. In fact, a, a more important covenant renewal. Now, this one is not in regards to marriage. In fact, God will show us in the Scripture how marriage is to be a picture of this covenant. It's the covenant between God and man. It's the covenant that God initiates with man. It's the covenant that God has made with His people who He's saved and He's rescued out of their land of slavery. It's the covenant that God keeps even when His people lack faith. In fact, we've seen over and over again so far in Exodus how God is faithful even when His people are not. And here now, in spite of their faithlessness and their breaking of the covenant and them worshiping a false idol, God once again is renewing His covenant with His people and as he does, I think there's something here for us to learn. Because perhaps this moment, or this morning, some of us need a reminder. Perhaps some of us need a reminder of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. Perhaps for some of us, we need repentance. We need to be reminded of what it means to turn from sin and turn to our covenant God. Perhaps for some, it's a combination of both. Because we often come to this point in our walk with the Lord where we know something's not as it should be, but we're not sure about what to do, what steps to take to have a right relationship with God. Well, I think this passage today gives us an excellent outline of what we need to do. And so I want to walk through just three points from it with you as we consider what it means to be in a right relationship with God. And it begins with the first point there in your outline. We begin by remembering God's marvelous works. We need to remember God's marvelous works. And notice there in verse 10, God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. He is the one who makes and holds the covenant. And He says, Before all your people, I will do marvels. Now that word marvel points to the limited nature of human understanding. 
that God is saying, I'm going to do things that, that if I explain them, you, you wouldn't understand it. <laughs> You're going to marvel at them. You're going to be in awe of them. It points to the limits of our understanding, but it also points to how we should respond when God does those things. God says, I'm going to move in such a way that you're going to be in awe. In fact, he goes on to say, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. So God says, I'm going to do something that that you've not seen before. Now that's extraordinary when you consider what they had already seen. And God is speaking to a group of people here who have witnessed the plagues in Egypt. Hey, he's speaking to a group of people who were there in Egypt when God sent Moses to deliver them, when Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let the people go, and God brought all these plagues against Egypt. He moved in all these miraculous ways. He turned the river to blood. He rained flies and gnats and frogs from the sky. He turned the entire land into complete pitch darkness for three days while keeping light over his people. God had done all these marvelous, amazing, miraculous things. And these folks had a, had a front row seat to God's marvels. And not just that. When God brought His people out of Egypt, He brings them to that point, if you remember in the Exodus, early in their journey, where they get to a place where all of a sudden they think they're going to die. On one side of them is the Red Sea that they can't cross. It represents death. On the other side are the, the Egyptians pursuing them, which represents death. And what does God do? God opens up the sea, they cross over through dry land, and then God swallows up their enemies in the sea. The people had a front row seat to this marvelous work of God. But not only that, as they continued on their journey, He made bitter water sweet, He sent bread from heaven, He brought water from a rock. And now God says He's going to do things that they haven't even seen yet. Now, it's easy for us to read this and, and kind of interpret it as God is saying He's going to keep one-upping Himself. That, that He's going to te- keep kind of stepping up. He's going to do better than He did before. But I don't think that's necessarily what God's saying here. He, he will do marvelous things as we continue to read the Word of God. We will see leading up to the cross how God will continue marvel after marvel after marvel. But what I think God's doing here is not so much saying to His people, hey, watch and see how I want up myself. He's saying, look and watch and see who I am. He's calling their attention to who He is. That He's a God who works in marvelous ways. That He always has been and He always will be. And their response to that should always be one of awe. I think what God's doing here also is He's pointing out that there's a danger for the people because they've experienced so many marvels and so many miracles that that they might become dull to them. That they might become a bit callous to them. You might think of it this way. How many of you, just by a show of hands, have seen any of the Winter Olympics so far? Okay, some of us. Tonight, I think, the Winter Olympics ends. I don't know the names for all the events, but one that caught my eye one night as I was watching, I think, was freestyle skiing. Now, I've skied a few times, and I would say when I ski, it's freestyle skiing. It just, you know. But not quite like this. Because if you saw what I think was freestyle skiing, these men and women, they would go down a hill, they would hit a jump, and as they hit that jump in the air, they would flip and turn and spin and do all these amazing things, and then they would land on their feet and continue to ski. 
Well, I turned on the TV one night, and I hadn't seen this in previous years, and the first time I saw it, I was just like, that, that's amazing. And then I listened. And the commentator began to say, well, yeah, that's, that's a disappointment. Yeah, he, yeah, he only got a 99.5% rotation on that turn, and his left pinky toe wasn't in the right place. And, you know, that land, it, it seemed like he landed just a, a quarter of a centimeter off. As I started listening and observing, I noticed that so many of the people weren't so much in awe. And I was just sitting there in awe, and I'm thinking, my goodness, have you forgotten what you just saw? I mean, think about it. Well, let's imagine we get a big snow here in Bloomfield, and everybody meets up on Fairfield Hill, and we're just sledding on down the hill, and then here comes Pastor Matt, and he's on his skis, and he hits a jump, and he does three flips and two twists and lands on his feet, hands in the air. We'd be talking about that for years. We would be in awe of that. That would be a marvelous thing. So why would our response there be so different than these judges, these commentators watching the Olympics? Well, see, for them, that wasn't the first jump they saw. That probably wasn't the hundredth jump they saw. These were people who had watched this over and over and over and over again to the point where rather than being in awe, they just became critical, and that's their job. But, but here's the danger. The danger for us as God's people is that we can become that way towards the Lord. Well, we can get to the point where we open up Exodus and we read God parting the Red Sea. Oh yeah, I've read that before. What's next? <laughs> And we can be a people who, we, we read through the Scripture these marvelous, awesome, mighty works of God, and we just kind of flip the page and go, oh, yeah, 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 I've seen that before. That's a danger for us. And it was certainly a danger for God's people in Exodus 34. And so God, in renewing His covenant with them, is first calling their attention to His marvelous deeds. He's saying, listen, remember what I've done and look towards what I'm going to do. And friends, that is what every one of us needs to do if we want to truly commit to walking with the Lord. We need to be in awe of the works of God. I mean, look around. Look at the marvel of creation. Look at what God has done. The psalmist tells us, look and see what God has done. Psalm 95, verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God, the psalmist writes. A great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands form the dry land. The psalmist says, you look outside and you see, and you should marvel at the creation of God. But it's not just in nature that we should marvel. We should marvel in God's created beings, in man. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14 tell us, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. What the psalmist here is saying is when I, when I notice just how amazing the human body is, that, that you knit this all together, I am in awe of you, God. I marvel at your works. God calls His people 
in Exodus 34 to marvel at his works. And friends, he calls us today to marvel at his works. And none is more marvelous in all of creation than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that, that creation that we should marvel over, Jesus had power and authority over it. And you may recall in Matthew chapter 8, there's a situation there where Jesus is in a boat with the disciples. And while they're in this boat, there's this great storm in the sea. And the disciples are all very scared, very worried. And they look over and there's Jesus. And Jesus is taking a nap. <laughs> Jesus is asleep on the boat in the midst of the storm. And so they wake him up. They're fretting. They're worried. They think they're going to die. And do you remember what Jesus does? He has authority over nature. He calms the seas. He stills the wind. And in response to that, we read this, Matthew 8, 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Friends, we're not just to look out and to marvel when we see nature. We are to marvel over the one who has all authority over nature. But not just that, he has authority over all creation. He has authority over man and power over man. In Matthew chapter 9, as you continue in Matthew, you see there's a situation where they bring a man before Jesus who is oppressed by a demon. And part of this oppression was he was mute, he couldn't speak. And so Jesus, because he has all authority, all power, he heals this man he releases him of this demonic oppression. Now this man can talk again. And again, notice what how people respond, Matthew 9.33. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And so God in Exodus 34, He's telling His people, don't, don't stop marveling at my work. The whole Scripture points towards this. Then we see Jesus, and in response to what He does, people marvel. But then notice what happens in the Gospels. That this one who has power over all of creation, this one who has power over all of mankind, does what? He becomes powerless. He submits himself to the will of the Father. He humbles himself and he goes to a cross to die a death he did not deserve. To take on the wrath of God. Why in the world would one who had all power over all creation, over all man, submit himself to that? Well, that question takes us all the way back to the beginning. In the garden, God created man to have perfect fellowship with him. He called man into obedience. He told man he could have anything he wanted from that garden. He set one tree in that garden and said, you should not eat the fruit of this tree. He was helping Adam and Eve to see they had dominion over that garden, but not dominion over all things. He, he was God. They, they needed to live according to what God said, and they chose to disobey God. They chose to rebel against God. And when that happened, God removed them from His presence because that's what sin does. Sin removes us from the presence of God. But God made a promise back in Genesis that a Redeemer would come that would crush the head of the enemy, that one would come who would die in the place of wicked man so that wicked man could receive the righteousness of God. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. And he went to the cross not to finish paying a debt that your good works had started. 
Jesus went to the cross to pay your debt in full. And when he died that death on the cross, this great exchange took place where he then offers us his righteousness and to cover us in it and to forgive us. And in return, he, he, he took on that death. In return, we received that righteousness. That this one who was powerful becomes powerless that we might respond in repentance and faith. Friends, we should marvel at that. I've heard in recent days as we've witnessed terrible things in our culture, as we see shootings and other events like that, you'll, you'll hear people talk about heroic acts. You'll hear people talk about how they would take a bullet for someone. I've heard spouses before as I've done counseling talk about, well, well I love them, I, I would die for them. Parents, perhaps you've had that conversation at times where you've heard someone say or you've said, you know, I would die for my children. Would you die for Hitler? Would you die for the worst offender that is paraded on the evening news and their sins are so grotesque you have to turn it off because you don't want your kids to hear it and have to explain it to them? Would you die for that person? That's the marvel of the gospel. Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And our response to that should be one of awe, and one of marvel. But it doesn't stop there. Point two, step two, we need to repent of faithlessness and sin. We need to repent of faithlessness and sin. As we continue in this passage, we see now God is encouraging His people to be faithful. He is recounting for them. You need to listen to the commands I've given you and not just listen. You need to observe these things. And as you observe these things, God says, I need to warn you about what you're walking into. See, the land they were going to be going into was not uninhabited. Now, this land they were going into had all kinds of pagan people in it who did not worship the one true God. And God knows the hearts of His people just as God knows your heart and my heart today. And God knows how quickly His people would turn and worship false gods, case in point, the golden calf. And he knows how quickly their intention can turn here. So he says, when you go into this land, don't make a covenant with this people. No, don't make an agreement. Don't make a treaty with them. In fact, he says to them, I want you to go in and I want you to tear down their altars to their false gods. And notice there in verse 13, he says, cut down their ashram. Ashram were sacred trees, or at times they were wooden poles that stood beside pagan altars. That they represented the goddess Asherah, who was believed to be a, a goddess of fertility. So your crops aren't producing? Well, go make a sacrifice to Asherah. Your wife's not getting pregnant? Well, then go make a sacrifice to Asherah. This is the goddess of fertility. And yet this was a false god. God says, I want you to tear down those altars. He warns them not to worship false gods. He tells them, don't marry the people of the land. Why? Because God cares about who His people marry. 
And God knows that if His people marry those who aren't in this covenant relationship with Him, that's not going to bring His people closer to Him. That's going to pull His people away from Him. He says they're not to worship these false gods, not to marry these people of the land. And then notice in verse 17, He commands them not to make any gods out of metal. And I think that one's fairly obvious why He's reiterating that, because that's exactly what they had just done. God is speaking here not to a people who at this point had been somewhat obedient and just needed a reminder. He's speaking to a group of people who had blown it. He's speaking to a group of people who had already reneged on their covenant promises. He's speaking to a group of people who needed to repent and turn from their sin. And he's calling them to repentance. So why is God so adamant here? Well, why does God care who you marry? Why does God care about these things in your life and in my life? Why is it not just sufficient to come to church on Sunday and worship God on Sunday and then kind of go do our own thing the rest of the week? Well, why is God so concerned? Notice verse 14. For you shall... Worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous. Imagine a scenario where perhaps we had not met before, and let's say my wife and I were at a gathering with you, and and you knew her, and you came up and started talking to her, and, and she said, oh, well, let me introduce you to my husband. Now, we're in Nelson County, everybody's got a nickname, I've kind of figured that out over the years. So she doesn't call me Richard, so my husband Richard, but he just goes by Jealous. You know. This is my Jealous husband. Nice to meet you, Jealous. <laughs> well, what would that imply to you if that was my nickname? It wouldn't be very positive, would it? No, the definition of Jealous, you look it up, it says, Afraid, suspicious, resentful of rivalry in love. Jealous kind of gives this idea, this connotation of someone who's, who's so worried, so anxious, so angry that the person they love might turn to another. That they're always suspicious. So is that who God is? Now the word here, jealous, has a far different meaning. It means fiercely protected. God is a fiercely protective God. J.I. Packer says it this way, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. That this is what it means. God is a jealous God. So he desires to have an exclusive relationship with his people. And he calls his people in turn to have an exclusive relationship with him. And so what that practically means is that you can't love sin and love God because he doesn't have your full devotion. 
You, you can't love the world and love God because that's not an exclusive relationship. That's why Jesus says you can't serve God and serve manna, money, because only one of them will have your devotion. And yet if there is a plague in the Christian church today, it is this. We want to have dual devotions. <laughs> we want to have one foot in and one foot out. So many of us look one way on Sunday and another way the rest of the week. We're like the reference to the character talkative in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, talkative. A saint abroad and a devil at home. See, the reason this happens so often, friends, is because we're trying to hold on to the things of this world, people, relationships, behaviors, desires we're trying to hold on to those things desperately and at the same time we're trying to have this this pseudo commitment to the lord and it doesn't work that way god calls his people to full and complete devotion james chapter 4 verse 17 whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him and his sin this this morning if you are a christian if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you know the right thing to do. And if you are not doing it, that indeed is sin. And God calls you to repent of it. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, what do you need to let go of today? What do you need to turn from today? What do you need to repent of today in order to be in this exclusive relationship with a God who desires to have that with you, to be in a right relationship with God. This God who works in marvelous ways, this God who calls us to faith and repentance. Point three, we need to renew our commitment to the Lord. Renew your commitment to the Lord. God reminds His people in these closing verses about all these different festivals and laws pertaining to what it meant to keep the covenant. We won't go into detail on all these. We've covered this ground before. But, but just as way of review, He talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You'll remember that was to commemorate how God, when He brought the people out of Egypt, He did it so swiftly, so quickly, that there wasn't time for the bread to rise. And so He called them to have this feast so they could remember how when God saves and God delivers, He does so swiftly and quickly. There was the consecration of the firstborn. That's where he's talking about the, the first of their, their uh, livestock and the first child. These all were things that were reminders to them that everything they had was from the Lord and needed to be dedicated to the Lord. And he reminds them of the Sabbath regulations and other festivals. All reminders of their need to worship God is their one true God. And then notice what he does there 
and 27 and 28. He tells Moses to write the Ten Commandments down again. You'll recall that when Moses was up the mountain with God previously and the people were down in the camp creating this golden cow and worshiping this false idol. When Moses came down the mountain, God had given him those Ten Commandments. And when he saw that sight of that false worship and he saw the people dancing and singing around that false idol, he threw those things to the ground. It was a picture of what God's people had done. They had broken the covenants. Here's the picture we have of our covenant-keeping God. God doesn't tell Moses, go pick up all those pieces and glue them back together. No, God says, I'm going to give you the covenant again. Write these things down again. Why? Because He is the one who holds and keeps the covenant. Friends, it's a reminder to us of the call of the gospel God is not calling you this morning to pick up the broken pieces of your life and somehow try to put this puzzle together or arrange them together. God's not calling you this morning to vow and try harder. He's not calling you this morning to vow to be a better person. He's calling you to look and realize that your life is a bunch of broken pieces and He's the only one who can make you whole again. And the Gospel says this, that doesn't happen through our religious works. It doesn't happen... Through our efforts, it happens through responding to the grace and the mercy and the gospel that we are offered through Jesus Christ, who paid once and for all our debt on the cross. And now has called us to walk by faith to the land of promise. And so when we talk about Renewing our commitment to the Lord. We're not talking about vowing and trying harder. We're talking about remember what the gospel says and live in light of it. Will you live in light of it? I've been reminded of that question in recent days as many of you have. And many of us have noted the passing of Billy Graham. Billy Graham was... A great evangelist for the last century. God allowed him 99 years. He was in his 100th year when he passed. If you're not familiar with Graham's ministry, it was a phenomenal one. God used him at a very specific time in the development of media and other things to get the gospel out literally to millions of people. And in recent days, airwaves have been filled with people giving testimony to how they came to faith in Christ through the witness of this servant of the Lord, through Billy Graham. But the story that caught my attention... It didn't come from a stadium where tens of thousands of people heard Graham preach. It didn't come from a televised broadcast of one of his crusades. No, it came from a story that Graham himself once shared. And I was reminded of this week. He was sitting in a hotel room preparing for a crusade and his phone rang. He answered the phone, the person it uh, wasn't calling for him. They asked for Mr. So-and-so. They thought they had a wrong number. He said, well, that, you know, you, that, that's not who this is. And the guy on the other end said, my goodness, you sound like Billy Graham. <laughs> he said, well, sir, this is Billy Graham. And there are no wrong numbers. And he went on to share the gospel with that person. And he shared with them about how in God's sovereign plan that Christ had died on the cross, 
that he could turn and repent and place his faith in Christ, that there were no wrong numbers, that it was sovereignty that he made that call that day. And this man who thought he dialed a wrong number gave his life to Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. As I recounted that story, it reminded me, friends, that God has a sovereign plan for all of us. And you're not here today by accident. God has ordained this moment that you might hear His Word and respond to it through repentance and faith. That you might stop trying to live a a duly aligned life and just commit yourself to the Lord and walk in His ways. That we might hear the promises of the Gospel and repent and place our faith in Christ. Because just like the people in Exodus 34, God is leading us to a land of promise as well. A land that Billy Graham now fully sees. A land that for us in Christ, we will see one day as well. So let's commit ourselves to walk with the Lord, to walk in repentance and faith. If you would stand together as I pray for us, and as we offer this time a response. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word that reminds us that you indeed are the covenant-keeping God. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. That that while we were sinners, that you demonstrated your love toward us and that Christ died for us. I thank you, God, for the hope we have from Romans 10 that if we will confess Jesus as Lord, we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we too can be saved. I thank you for the promise we find there in Romans 10 that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So Father, I pray that you would do a marvelous work this morning. I pray God for those here this morning who have yet to call out to you in repentance and faith that you would turn their hearts, that you would lead them to repentance. I pray for those of us perhaps who have done that many years ago, but This morning may find ourselves duly aligned, one foot in the world, one foot out of it, holding on to sin, holding on to relationships, holding on to behaviors that we know are not pleasing to you. Father, I pray that through the power of your Spirit we might repent of those things and might commit to walking by faith with you and that exclusive relationship that you call us to. Father, I ask you to do this work in the power of the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.